Well, with that intro, I will give you the other intro. So we're going to talk today about Peter's journey, as I call it. I think you're going to find it interesting, uh, a little enlightening. I did as I prepared this. And the interesting part is how many parts of this story apply to each of us? None of them apply, obviously, directly. None of us uh, go through what Peter did. None of us walked with Jesus. But these little pieces, the snippets of the, the, uh, the, the pictures that we get of Peter uh, will be lessons to us, I hope. So I think you're going to find it, as I said, interesting. And we're going to talk about Peter's fall. And, of course, we're going to talk about his restoration. Now, before we go there, I want to take a look at what I call Peter's commissioning. I keep looking at this. That's not, this is the one. Is it up? Is it gone? Oh, really? Well, it works. Sorry. This is the toughest part. It won't stay. All right, is that, is that okay? Everybody here? All right, now that used up. I get extra two minutes. <laughs> because I, I don't want to overrun Pastor Yuri. All right, let me, let me go on. So anyway, so we'll start by looking at his, I call it his commissioning. We'll begin the account by looking at uh, an interchange between Jesus and Peter. Uh, again, we can look at, uh, again, call this his commissioning. Turn to Matthew 16 and begin with verse 13. I'm not going to give you a lot of time to turn, so just keep turning and I'll begin here. Matthew 16, verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? Say that the Son of Man is. And they said, some people say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others... Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Here we have Jesus questioning his disciples directly with the words, who do you say that I am? He was seeking to get them to admit to their own convictions about his person, about just who they thought he really was. Was he just a good teacher? Remember, this is back in the beginning. Was he just another prophet? Or was he, as Peter was about to describe him, which was the answer Jesus wanted to hear. And Peter then, in a profession of faith, because God had already um, attributed righteousness to him because he believed, God knew he believed. So in a profession of faith, he spoke up and answered this way. He said, you are the Christ, this is Matthew 16, verse 16. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has, not revealed, has re- not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So here, for the first time, Jesus was telling Peter and the others 
but especially Peter, of the mission which was to be undertaken. Peter and the others were to build the church with Jesus Christ as its foundation and head. Now, Peter and the others, of course, didn't really understand what Jesus was telling them at the time. Their understanding would grow slowly, but it wouldn't be until the Holy Spirit would come upon them at Pentecost that they would realize that the mission that Jesus had for them was that they, and especially Peter, would be instrumental in helping establish the church. So here's the beginning of Peter's journey. Now, we just saw that Peter was chosen by Jesus to be a main figure, a most significant apostle for the voice of the gospel in establishing the church in its early days. But along the way, and before that happened, Peter stumbled. He fell. So in moments of weakness and fear, in spite of Jesus' prior warning, Peter denied knowing his Lord three times. And in his fallen guilt, he could not fulfill the mission that God had planned for him. He would need forgiveness and restoration to be able to carry on. So let's start here by taking now a look at his fall. His journey downward began in the upper room, the night of Jesus' arrest. After Judas had left, Jesus spoke to his disciples about his leaving and about his impending glorification. Then he gave a new commandment about loving one another. Turn to John 13, beginning in verse 31. Keep your finger in John because we'll be there a lot. John 13. So it reads this way. John says, when he had gone out, that was Judas, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So Peter, uh, hearing those words, and he sensed now that Jesus had been speaking of his death, and he became focused on possibly losing his master. Is that all right? Can you okay. See, we used to have a lapel mic, and it was much easier. <laughs> In that state of mind, Jesus' commandment about love, rather than humbling Peter, made him realize how much he loved his Lord. It intensified his feelings about how he didn't want to lose him. Peter was focused on himself. So, the interchange in which Peter, in great self-interest and self-confidence, expressed his willingness to even die for his Lord, was answered by Jesus' prediction 
that Peter would fall. Picking up in verse 36 of John 13, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Now, Peter was stunned and bothered by Jesus' prophecy. He refused to believe that he could or would deny his master. His pride and self-confidence, or a better term that I like to use is his prideful self-confidence, wouldn't allow him to admit that he might succumb to such weakness. Also, I'd add that he didn't understand really what all this was all about. He didn't know. But was, why are you telling me about a rooster? They weren't in the garden. They weren't in the courtyard yet. All right. After the group had left the upper room and on the way to the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus again talked of his coming ordeal. He talked of his leaving. He talked of the disciples scattering and of his resurrection. Now, Matthew has a, a better account of this. In Matthew 26, starting with verse 30, he says, And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter's strong-headed self-confidence had been intensified by Jesus' upper room revelation to him of his pending weakness. So with typical self-confidence, even even more bold, I guess, Peter boasted and then denied Jesus' prediction of what he was about to do. So we go on here in verse 33. Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you, this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. Now, then they went to the, they were going to the garden and Jesus wanted to pray. So in the garden where Jesus had gone to pray before his arrest, Jesus was displeased by the disciples sleeping on watch. Remember he said, watch while I go pray? Came back, found them sleeping. And he warned Peter. This time he told Peter to be watchful and to pray that he would not enter into temptation. Here's Matthew 26, going down to verse 40. He says, And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Before I became saved, I didn't know 
I knew that saying, but I didn't know where it came from. Each of the four Gospels says that after Jesus was arrested, and while he was in the process of being questioned, Peter denied him three times as he waited outside in the high priest's courtyard. We'll go back to John's account. Go to John 18, verse 15 here. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. goes on here, verse 17. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and officers had made... Okay, did this fall? Okay, thank you. Without all the support, I don't know what I would do. Okay, let me finish. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter was also with them, standing and warming himself. All right, now let's open this up a little bit. The disciples had all fled in fear after Jesus' arrest. However, two showed more composure, showed more loyalty than the others. Peter and another disciple, as John wrote it, thought to be John, I'm sure, followed Jesus and his arresting enemies back across the Kidron into the city to the courtyard of the high priest. John, the other disciple, had gone in and then came back out and spoke to the servant girl at the door and brought Peter in. He was able to go in because they knew him. They thought that he, he had delivered fish to the, to the high priest in the past, but they didn't know Peter, so Peter had to stay out. As Peter was going in with John... The servant girl asked Peter, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? With a terse and definite answer, I am not. Peter began his shameful descent of denial. The first time, this is his first time, his denial of being Jesus' disciple might have been due to his uneasiness with his surroundings. It might have been due to fear of retribution for cutting off Malchus's ear at the arrest scene, or it may have just been a simple, sinful lie uttered to gain entry to the courtyard. Does that sound familiar? I don't want to get in trouble here. I just want to go in. So, In any case, that first denial must have seemed minor, but once performed, just like sin, Repeating that denial, or repeating the denial, with even more vehemence, became easier for the prideful, self-confident, boasting, yet fearful, now, Peter. He didn't know himself, and of course Jesus did know him. Now, probably because it was cold, Peter went to stand with the servants of the high priest and the temple officers, who were standing by a charcoal fire, as John said, trying to keep warm. Now we're going to see that that was a mistake. It was a mistake that led to Peter's second 
and third, denials of his master. Let's go on in, in John 18, verse 25 here. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, that's the soldiers, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it. And at once, a rooster crowed. Now, it was a mistake for Peter to place himself further into temptation's way by standing and warming himself in the courtyard with the servants and officers who were Jesus' enemies. He probably had been listening to their blasphemous talk about Jesus, but he was too weak and afraid to speak up and witness in defense of his master. And soon, his fear of man would cause him to sin the second time. This time, the question as to whether he was one of Jesus' disciples came from among those servants and officers. And out of his fear of man, Peter, for the second time, denied Jesus as he answered firmly, I am not. Finally, the light from the fire illuminated Peter's face enough to arouse recognition and further suspicion in another one of those present. He was a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off. He asked Peter, did I not see you in the garden with him? The question, no doubt, must have sent a chill down Peter's spine because being a disciple of Jesus wasn't a crime. But Peter knew that this, his assault on Malchus, was a crime. Now his panic was driven by his fear of being arrested and charged with that crime. So here we have panic-stricken Peter denying, probably emphatically, any association with or knowledge of his master for the third time. Mark's Gospel has a little bit more detail here. It says, he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. That's in Mark 14, verse 71. And after that third denial, just as Jesus had predicted, the rooster crowed. Peter had fallen just as Jesus had predicted. Now we can turn and there he is, a fallen Peter, and what's left? He has to be restored. His recovery, his restoration from his sins of lying and denial began long before the resurrected Jesus in his grace restored him to fellowship and service to his master on that beach by the Sea of Galilee. It began right there in the courtyard at the crowing of the rooster. I want to give you a little extra detail that's recounted by Luke that puts a, a good light on this situation. Luke 22, verses 59 to 62, reads this way. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, certainly this man also 
was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. So in the courtyard, by the fire, three things began to accomplish Peter's recovery and restoration. The rooster crowed. Jesus turned and looked at Peter, and Peter remembered Jesus' words. Now first, as Peter uttered his third denial, came the clear, shrill crow of the rooster, just as Jesus had predicted. The message of that rooster's crow pierced, opened, and struck Peter, Peter's heart. Second, at the crowing of the cock, the Lord turned and looked at Peter. When his beloved Jesus' eyes met Peter's, the light of Jesus' look anguished the dark shadow the devil had cast over Peter's soul. At once, Peter's heart was exposed to the awfulness of what he'd done. These weren't just simple little white lies. But also, and this is a key part here, also, Jesus' eyes showed Peter something else. I can't do that look. If I could, I'd do it for you. I've tried to practice it, and I can't get it. <laughs> I can only imagine it. All right. Um, in that look, his eyes conveyed not only disappointment, not only grace and tenderness, but also it conveyed a deep sadness. Jesus knew the terrible burden of shame, of guilt and remorse, which Peter would have to carry during that troubled time to come. And third came Peter's remembrance of Jesus' prophetic words. Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. That memory weighed heavily on Peter's heart, and he went out of the courtyard and wept bitterly. Now, Peter had been awakened to his sin. He'd been convicted by it. It's true that both realization of one's sin and conviction of one's sin has to happen before repentance, before the asking for forgiveness, and before receiving that forgiveness and cleansing, <coughs> before all those things can take place. Now, in the words of the Apostle John, we have 1 John 1, verses 8 to 9. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So here we have Peter, and at that point, he was left to carry his burden of guilt through the time of Jesus' trial, through the witness of Jesus' death at the cross, through the time of discovering an empty tomb, 
and on until the resurrected Jesus' third appearance to the disciples at the Sea of Galilee. He also, I need to mention that, remember that he also had to carry that through the two, two appearances of Jesus in the upper room. I imagine he didn't want to look at Jesus. He was so ashamed. Oh, that's being, that's not in the book, but we can only imagine. Um, so, one, one other, I want to make a couple of comments here on, uh, we, we're, we're at the uh, uh, end of John 20, or John, John uh, wrote John 20, it's kind of written as though it was the end of the gospel, yet there's another final chapter, which is chapter 21. John, in chapter 21, ties up and brings closure to loose ends left at the end of chapter 20. Remember, he ended chapter 20 with the, the mission statement for the book. We're supposed to know Jesus as our Lord. All right. But that, that's sort of the end. And then there's chapter 21 here. But he had taken those verses, and in the first 14 verses, he devoted them to settling the issue of divine care for the disciples. Remember, Jesus had plenty, had pretty much taken care of them for three years. He'd been there for them. He mentored them. And now, here he was resurrected, and they were wondering what would happen to them. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> Peter, remember, he had disobeyed the Lord. The Lord told them, to wait for him by the Sea of Galilee. I mean, by the, by the Sea of Galilee, and they didn't. And he said, "Well, I'm going fishing." So they all joined him, and that's how they ended up in the boat. So, but with the incident of the catching of the fish and of the providing of the disciples' breakfast, a warm fire, food, and fellowship, the resurrected Jesus showed that he would still meet the disciples' needs and be with them, even now that he would be ascending to the Father. So now let's go on here to Peter's restoral. Um, we'll pick this up at the uh, verse 15 of chapter 21, uh, where he, uh, Jesus, John makes the account of Jesus' restoral. John 21, verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Let's open this up a little bit. Breakfast was finished, and the risen Jesus began Peter's restoration and Recommissioning, as I say it. Jesus, using the name Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, that's the name he used before 
he started following Jesus. Anyway, he asked Simon Peter, do you love me more than these? This question, referencing the boat, the nets, the other equipment, probably even the other disciples, because they were all fishing together, it was pointed directly to Peter's disobedient decision to try to return to being a fisherman. So here began Jesus' challenge to Peter to permanently give up his former life and based on his overriding love for him, for Jesus, follow him devotedly and exclusively. Peter couldn't stand on his former boasts of fidelity by simply answering, yes, Lord. Instead, he appealed to Jesus' omniscience, shifting his answer to rely on Jesus' supernatural knowledge as he added, you know that I love you. In the Greek, there's a word play in the interchange. Jesus used the word agapao for love, meaning the love of highest order. A love of total commitment, a 100% love. And Peter, feeling too guilty, still ashamed about his disobedience and denial, wouldn't claim that highest level of love. He used the Greek word phileo, meaning an affectionate, a friendship-like 60% kind of love. So he was saying, yes, Lord, I love you like a good friend. Now, accepting Peter's humble claim to a lesser love, Jesus still graciously continued with his recommissioning, and he said, feed my lambs. Now, he used the verb basco for feed and the term my lambs, lambs instead of sheep. Jesus was here first commending to Peter the weak and feeble of the flock, Peter called them, just in, the, in his second book, he called them the unstable souls. He was referring or commending to Peter the first saved or the newly saved who belonged to him, who belonged to Jesus. He said, my lambs. He was commending them to Peter to shepherd and feed. Now, Jesus pressed his love emphasizing question, do you love me? A second time. This time, he left out the comparative more than these. Now he was focused only on the totally committed agapao love of him that would be necessary for Peter to be the effective shepherd and the effective leader of the apostles as originally commissioned in Matthew 16. We read that earlier. So Peter here was still not willing to stand on the terms of highest commitment. And he again used the friendship verb phileo in his answer. 
And again, he put the burden of the answer on Jesus' knowledge by using the words, you know, before expressing his phileo-type love. Jesus' command that second time was, tend my sheep. He used the form of the Greek verb, poimaino, which also means shepherding and feeding, but more comprehensively includes the ideas of rule, discipline, and management. So Jesus was saying, really, shepherd my sheep, tend my sheep. Also notice, he had shifted from lambs to sheep, to the mature of the flock. And for the third time, Jesus asked, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And that third time, Jesus used Peter's word for love, phileo. Here he was calling into question even Peter's previously, previous supposedly safe claim of only affectionate, friendship-type devotion. It's kind of like asking, do you even love me as much as you would love a friend? Jesus was implying that Peter's life didn't support even that lower level of love. That grieved Peter's heart. So Jesus has, by that, Jesus had driven home the necessary point. And Peter, appealing to the Lord's all-seeing eye, responded positively, saying, Lord, you know everything. Lord, you know my heart. You know that I love you. Some of those words are mine. Peter had denied Jesus three times in the courtyard. And here, three times, Jesus had challenged Peter's love for him. That strong, self-confident, self-reliant Peter had been made to see his weakness. He had been made to see his sin and had been made to heartily realize his master's agapao love for him, his master's true, deep love for him. That love was evidenced by Jesus' grace-filled restoral. That restoral was given even in spite of Peter's failing. The resurrected Jesus acknowledged Peter's contrite repentance and graciously complete restoring and recommissioning there on that beach on the Sea of Galilee in front of the other six disciples. As he finally said, feed my so you have feed my lambs tend my sheep feed my sheep feed my sheep spiritual food now the next verses 18 and 19 in John 21 um, conclude Peter's restoration encounter with Jesus I'll read them here to you Truly, truly, Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, Follow me. We'll open this up a little bit again. Continuing, Jesus compared Peter's past 
when he was young and free with his future, the time when after serving his Lord for three more decades, Peter would grow old. That time would be the time when Peter would be seized and led away to his death, a martyred death by crucifixion. He would be crucified upside down. He asked to be crucified upside down because in his mind, he didn't deserve to be crucified right side up as his master was. Which tells me he still felt remorse about what he had done even though he was forgiven. John inserted parenthetically that Jesus had said this in order to make clear that not only Peter's death, but by what kind of death he was to die was to glorify God. Now Jesus, having finished saying this, having spoken his prophecy of Peter's manner of death, said to Peter, follow me. Those words to Peter, follow me, serve to conclude his words of grace and restoration to the now forgiven and reinstated Peter. He was saying, Peter, take up your cross and follow me. And he did, didn't he? Peter went on uh, in his future, that sharpening effect of Christ's grace-filled, loving restoral of him would be evidenced by and evidenced in Peter's dedication and devotion as time went on. From that point on, Peter did follow Christ. He remained obedient to Christ's commission as he went on to proclaim the gospel. Remember after the Holy Spirit came in Acts 2, verses 14 to 40, and Acts 3, verses 12 to 26, those those uh, uh, witnesses and gospels that he preached, those are good reading. They don't move you, nothing will. So he went on to do that. He went on to feed the flock. He went on to feed and tend the lambs and sheep entrusted to him by the Lord. And later in his words to the church, Peter described his ministry. This is in 1 Peter 5, verses 1 to 3. I'll read it for you. Peter said, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. So we have some concluding things to say. I do, you might guess. Dave talks a lot. So we ask ourselves here, so how does this apply to me? How does it apply to us? What can we take away from these verses about Peter's restoral? I want you to notice that Jesus didn't simply chastised Peter for his denials. He didn't ask him, why did you deny me? Or he didn't say, you know, denying me was wrong. Don't you feel bad? Aren't you sorry? I mean, Jesus knew he was. But he didn't say that. He didn't say anything on that level. 
What did he do? He went to the very basis. He went to the absolutely most important requirement for a true relationship with him. He addressed Peter's true love for him, his agapao love. Jesus had said in Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven that the most important commandment is that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Peter had heard those words before. And that made Jesus' question, do you love me, strike at the very heart, strike at the very foundation of Peter's belief in and loyalty to his master. Now, if you're not a believer today, you need to hear these words, do you love me? You need to hear them, truly hear them, and turn from your ways and believe and follow Jesus. If you are a believer here today, you need to hear these words and grow from them. Grow more like him. Jesus' piercing question, do you love me, needs to echo in all of our hearts, needs to echo in there regularly. His love for us and our love for him are the very basis of our relationship with him. The Father loved us perfectly even before creation. He loved us enough to give, not send, give his only son to us, his children. He gave his son for our salvation. He gave his son in order that through our belief we might be saved from the consequences of our sin. He gave his son that we might have eternal life and start living it now while we're still in this fleshly world. He gave his son that we might die to sin and live to his righteousness, that we might be born again. The son loved us enough to leave his place in glory with God and come down into this fallen fleshly world to explain the Father, come to give us an example, to give us a living example, a perfect example of God and his attributes. Live this, use Bing's talk, live this crummy life as a man. It's not all crummy if you're a believer. It's only a growing life for your troubles. Okay, enough of that. So, <clears throat> he came as a man to endure temptation and persecution, and more, to endure the deep sadness of being denied by those who were so lost that they wouldn't and couldn't be saved. He came from glory to bear the awful burden of our sin and pay the debt we owe for those sins be sacrificed as a perfect lamb, to be resurrected in victory, and return again to his Father's side in glory. That's love. That is inconvenient love. That's put-yourself-out love. That is love of the highest order. That is perfect love. 
That is perfect love of God. That is God's love. That love draws us to him. And that love, brothers and sisters, is our love for God, which drives us to him. Just as there's a force which holds the particles of every atom in the universe together, love is the force. Love is the spiritual magnet which draws and drives us to him. And love is the spiritual glue which makes us and keeps us one with each other and with the total oneness of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, Jesus, in his high priestly prayer, prayed for us, his children, before leaving the upper room that special night, before all of this happened. He prayed this. This is down into the high priestly prayer. He had first prayed for the disciples. Then he said, prayed, I do not ask for these only, that being the disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Let me pray. Gracious, holy, loving Father, we come you here today as humble children. Please help us to see Peter's journey as a mirror reflecting some or many of our own failings. Help us to grow from that uh, picture. Help us to grow in our love for you. Help us to grow in our love for your son. We pray that your love for us will draw us and our love for you and our love for each other will drive us to grow into the holy, glorious oneness for which your son prayed so long ago. As we strive to live to righteousness and fight against our sins, please help us to remember Jesus' look of grace, of tenderness, of disappointment, of sadness given to Peter. May the memory of his look not only convict us, but remind us of his love for us. We pray these things in your son's holy and precious name. Amen.